Welcome, listeners, to this episode of Glam City. I'm Tamsin Peach. And I'm Anna Clark. Today we are going to be talking to Michael Harvey from the Australian National Maritime Museum. The Glam sector is the galleries, libraries, archives and museums. These are the institutions that have access to knowledge as their mission. And every week we get someone in from the sector to take us behind the scenes and talk to us about what's happening across the city. Hello, Michael. Hi, guys. Now, your Twitter profile says, Michael, that you are a museum worker and Oxford comma user. Welcome. But first, you've got to tell us what the Oxford comma is, I think. (laughs) Okay. Um, When you make a list using a comma, you're always taught at school that you say uh, this comma, that and the other. And that works most of the time. But there are some times where that is genuinely misleading. So, for example, if I was to say I went out for coffee with my parents, comma, Mary Poppins and Miss Piggy, you might conclude that my parents are, in fact, Mary Poppins and Miss Piggy. Whereas if I was to say I went out for coffee with my parents, comma, Mary Poppins, comma, and Miss Piggy, you would realise that I was actually going out for coffee with four people, not just two. So is there a secret society of Oxford, comma, users across the city? I have genuinely no idea. I just know that uh, it's one of those little uh, uh, language ticks that uh, I get picked up on because I always get accused of using too many commas in my documents. And sometimes I'm able to defend that by saying, oh, no, this, this comma is absolutely valid. At other times, I probably do uh, just overuse the comma generally. Moving from commas to all things oceanic and nautical, when did you develop a love of the maritime? Oh, that's a really good question. Probably from when I was a kid. I actually just loved reading stories of the sea. I liked reading adventure stories generally, and uh, sea stories are one of that great genre mm. of adventure stories. So, uh, you know, I remember watching the movie of Moby Dick when I was a kid. I remember reading Hornblower books. I remember reading the Patrick O'Brien novels when they came out. And I, I actually found reading historical fiction was a fantastic way of learning history. Um, and so... Uh, Interestingly, most of my background, my my other major interest is in natural history and in natural science. In fact, uh, I studied zoology at university and wound up working primarily in science and natural history museums. And uh, I eventually came to the Maritime Museum primarily because I had a lot of experience working in museums, not because I had any great... Uh, expertise in maritime. And so I'm now in the happy position that I'm I'm working in a museum where the stuff I read for fun Mm. is also the stuff I can read for work. Can you talk about how long you've been at the museum? Yeah, uh, I've, I've been at the Maritime Museum for about four and a half years now. Um, before that, I worked at the Australian Museum. Uh, so again, a, a, a terrific Sydney institution with a very strong natural history focus, uh, natural history and cultural heritage. Um, and so moving across town to the Maritime Museum in 2013 uh, was, was a fantastic experience to, to have been able to work for both of those, those institutions. I guess the crossover there is Charles Darwin. <laughs> well, the, the crossovers are many, but Charles Darwin is, is the classic, you know, he's somebody who took to adventure at sea, but from the standpoint of science and natural history. So, yeah, um, Darwin is the, the ideal uh, Australian museum, maritime museum person. Yeah, and, and so the Maritime Museum is built on, at Darling Harbour and Cockle Bay on, on the lands of the Gadigal people. And it, it was built as part of the redevelopment of Darling Harbour, right? Correct, yeah. 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 Uh, it was a bicentennial, you know, in, in that whole process when um, uh, Darling Harbour was redeveloped, the Maritime Museum was uh, one of the institutions that, that was put in there. And interestingly, in the time that the Maritime Museum has, has been there, it's moved from being sort of the edge of, you know, it was kind of at the edge of Darling Harbour as it was built up then. And we're now kind of in the middle of Darling Harbour. You've had the casino, um, you've had a whole heap of development around it. So it now feels very central in Darling Harbour as opposed to being on one edge. 
Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating to, to think about how the city has been built up around a museum. What, what has that been like for you? Has that changed your mission in any way? Look, I think the museums always evolve and the way that the Maritime Museum's mission has essentially been the same. It's fundamentally to share Australia's maritime heritage and to act really as a as a national museum. And, and our location in Sydney is primarily because of the proximity to the water. All of the other national institutions are in Canberra. Uh, it's somewhat difficult to park a, a destroyer, a submarine and a replica tall ship on Lake Burley Griffin. So uh, the, the decision was taken to put the Maritime Museum in Sydney. But our mission is actually a genuinely national one. And so a big part of what we do is everything we do in Sydney, we try and find a way to, to take that out beyond the city as well and to take that to um, uh, Australians all over the country. By the airwaves. Correct. Uh, now, one of those uh, ships parked in Darling Harbour is James Cook's HMB Endeavour. Right. A replica of James Cook's a HMB replica. Endeavour. We have to be very careful there because the original Endeavour, we think, is... Um, Uh, shipwrecked at the bottom of Rhode Island Harbour in the United States of America. So what we have is a replica that was built in Western Australia. Uh, and uh, it, so it's, but it is, yeah, it's as, as exact a replica as you can get. It was, it was built using the original ship plans from Greenwich, uh, but it's not the original ship. Point taken. <laughs> How do people respond, particularly to the endeavour? Because at the moment uh, we see a lot of debates about uh, James Cook, monuments around James Cook, and you know these aren't simple histories, and they're not just one side of the story. How do people respond to these uh, important historical objects like the endeavour replica? I think the the key answer there is there's there's no single response. People respond in very diverse ways, and um, you, you will get different people and different viewpoints um, coming to the vessel uh, and reacting to the vessel in very different ways. And certainly, um, among uh, tourists, you see one type of reaction, um, and the the histories you talk about with the the statues, um, actually f- uh, among tourists to Australia aren't necessarily well understood. So it's part of the role of a museum to really to try and be a space where multiple perspectives can be told and where we talk from a a strong evidence base. So where we, for example, if we look at the histories around the endeavour, actually providing information about what actually happened um, from from both perspectives. Mm. So interestingly, at the museum historically, we've mounted exhibitions that have dealt with Indigenous perceptions of Cook's arrival, the view from the shore, as much as the view from the ship, for example. And I think it's really important that uh, all museums are able mm. to, to both accept that there will be multiple perspectives mm. and to share those perspectives. Is that challenging at a curatorial level? Because some of the debates are quite heated in public and you know they go on talkback radio and politicians are happy to have their two bobs worth. As a national institution, do you find that you're, it's challenging, not just reconciling, but you know, incorporating and dealing with multiple perspectives and multiple audiences? Yeah, there's a, a line in, in museums that they really should be safe spaces for dangerous ideas and that museums should be open spaces where ideas can be debated respectfully and openly. And there's an interesting challenge as to whether museums are about presenting one or other particular viewpoints. And yes, we're a federal government institution, so I don't, however, see it as our role to necessarily to push any particular political line. Our role is to present evidence. It is to make a space where discussion and debate can happen and where Australians from all over can can bring those perspectives and and have them respectfully heard. Mm. And uh, some of those voices um, are on display in your core exhibition Eora First People. So I was really struck coming into the museum that that's the first thing that you encounter as a visitor. 
And it's, it's one of the things that as a museum we see as being fundamentally part of our mission is when we talk about sharing Australia's maritime heritage, that's a maritime heritage that did not begin with Cook in 1770 or with Hartog in 1616. It's a, it's a maritime heritage that goes back um, tens of thousands of years because, of course, Australia's first peoples have been um, users of our waterways and um, have been navigators long before Europeans came to Australia. So when we talk about sharing Australia's maritime heritage, we mean all of Australia's maritime mm. heritage. Is there a favourite example of that heritage that you hold in the exhibition? I mean, walking through, you're really struck by these changing objects over time from those first Nowies up till the most state-of-the-art vessel? Yeah, look, I actually really like the display we currently have uh, above the museum's foyer of uh, a collection of um, different uh, Nawi canoes. And you see that there are different designs mm. that are based on different types of waterways, different peoples, um, different uh, knowledges for how to navigate. And I think seeing those and seeing the... And they're, they're all they're modern constructions, these ones. They're, they're made using traditional knowledge, but they were made recently. And so they exemplify both keeping that knowledge extant and, and alive, but also demonstrating that, in a very physical way, Australia's waterways have been navigated for a long time. There must be plenty of stories to go with those boats. Is there a favourite ye olde sea shanty <laughs> or, uh, you know, what's the equivalent of an old wives' tale, an old Myth sailor's tale? <laughs> uh, look, it's a very good question. I, I, there are dozens of stories around all of the, the vessels we have. In the Eora exhibition, um, and it's not an old tale, it's a, it's a new tale, but there's a, a Nawi canoe that was actually built by school kids from uh, Western Sydney, uh, Indigenous kids. And there, we documented their process for of working with um, elders and uh, actually harvesting the bark and shaping it and turning it into a canoe and, and making it and, and the story of how they did that and the effect it had on them and the experience of doing that as something that was putting them in touch with um, their their traditional knowledge was something that is, is a, a, I think, a terrific story for a museum to be able to both engender by creating the opportunity for the students to do that and then share through the exhibition. Do you have a... And I know this is a very hard question, but do you have a favourite object in the collection? <laughs> um, look, I've got to be honest and say I don't. Um, I, I, there are something like 140,000 objects in the museum's collection, and like all museums... Uh, only a small percentage of those is ever on display at any one time. I am very fond of our vessels. I think it's very cool to have objects one can actually climb on and go on board. So, you know, I, I, I the, the the submarine Onslow, for example, I've never thought I would get the chance to go on a submarine, mm. uh, and now, you know, I. I work with one every day, which it's is really It's quite a cool. different experience of a museum object, isn't it? It's it not really like opening is. an archive yeah. box. You're actually walking inside the archive box, essentially. Exactly right. So I think the, the vessels um, would certainly be one of the highlights. I also actually really like uh, some of the artworks we have. So there is in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition we have at the moment, and that's a, a photographic exhibition that's come in from the UK, but we've augmented it by adding um, objects, depictions of wildlife from an Indigenous perspective. And there's an absolutely spectacular um, bronze sculpture of a dugong um, executed by Alec Tapodi, and that is just a stunning piece of work. It's uh, as, a, as an artwork, as something that evokes the, the animal, the dugong, while also evoking 
the traditional knowledge around these animals, I, I find jaw-dropping. So mm. that, that's a, a single piece that is a relatively recent acquisition to the museum's collection. It was purchased with the help of the museum's foundation. And, uh, yeah, it was wonderful to be able to get that on display as a, as a centrepiece in an exhibition of internationally, you know, acclaimed and international standard photography and depictions of wildlife. And to, to have that as an alternative view of wildlife is, is just fabulous. We'll have to go and check it out, Tamsin. Recommended. <laughs> Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and your favourite podcast app. Uh, now, Michael, you have a um, couple of, ex- well, you have several exhibitions on at the moment, but the Nicholas Bourdain one is a particularly one that fascinates me because I remember going and seeing the map that was drawn with all the French names on it. And I thought, here is an alternate history. Tell me who Nicolas Baudin was. Okay, so uh, Nicolas Baudin was the captain of a scientific expedition that was mounted from France uh, in the early years of the 19th century, so 1802 uh, uh, to 1804, and uh, dispatched by Napoleon, who um, obviously was running France at the time, was very interested in finding out about the world. Uh, and so, like the British were doing with you, you've, you've mentioned Cook's expedition. Well, the, the, the French were also um, sending their explorers out to document the world. They were very interested in in science as well as um, you know Napoleon obviously um, was looking at uh, expanding expanding French influence as much as the British were. And uh, I'm sure uh, the, the the opportunity to to peek into British colonies and find out what was going on was was probably a motivation as well. And so um, Baudin led uh, a, an expedition of two ships and came to Australia. And so there were, as was the case with Cook, he had artists and scientists and naturalists on board. And so the collection that we're able to bring to the museum actually comes from France. It's from the Natural History Museum of Le Havre. And uh, it's a collection of about 100 paintings depicting Australian wildlife, Australian landscapes, Australian people, but through French eyes. And so they're the paintings executed by the artist Lazur. We, we see uh, this amazing collection and they're beautifully executed. And for that collection to be returning to Australia from, you know, from 210 years ago is really a terrific opportunity. And again, we're as we did with Wildlife Photographer of the Year, we're actually bringing out uh, objects from our own collection to augment that. Uh, we actually have an interesting collection of caricatures executed in Britain, sending up Napoleon, their propaganda, essentially. And so we can counterpoint the British view of Napoleon with the Napoleonic French view of this British colony. Um, we also have been able to borrow uh, the original chronometer that was uh, on board Bodan's ship and put that on display as well. So we have the scientific instruments. And again, these were, these were the, the space shuttle missions, the moonshots of their day, and sending these crews out to, to explore the world. And so being able to come back and, and have a look at that through the lens of another 210 years mm. of history is, is really special. Given that we're living now in an era of Google Maps where you can open your laptop or your phone and zoom out to see the entire globe and move across the world uh, and our sense of space is very much um, visual, you know, the sense of Australia. We all know what Australia looks like. And it's it's fascinating to think back to that time when it was unknown to Western eyes um, and unknown to the rest of the world. 
Absolutely. And, you know, these ships were sent off and they, they literally, they, you know, the communication was such like that they would Mars. vanish. You know, and, and you wouldn't know what had happened to them. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, and, you know, it's, it's notable that um, Bodan and, and Matthew Flinders, their vessels actually met uh, at a time when their, their respective countries were at war. But because these were scientific expeditions, they treated each other perfectly courteously. They exchanged scientific data. Um, they accepted that on this side of the world. And when faced with the, the challenges of, of seamanship and navigation that they were facing, that this really wasn't a time to mm. be continuing hostilities. So um, even at a, a time of war, scientific inquiry and the notion of exploration and discovery, at least from a European mm. perspective, was seen as as having primacy. And I actually think that's a, a really a beautiful thing. Mm. As a proud South Australian, uh, you are a <laughs> national museum. I grew up knowing all about Encounter Bay, uh, which of course was the place where the two ships met. But there are other encounters as well, which we've been gesturing towards between mm. the French and the Aboriginal people, how are they, what are the interactions like and how are they recorded in this exhibition? Um, so we have artworks that depict the Indigenous people the French saw. Uh, and clearly there was a, a level of fascination and interest there and an understanding that this was a, a populated land. Um, and so those, uh, those impressions are absolutely recorded and, and shared in the exhibition through the work of the artist. Yeah, fab. I mean... I was just going to say, you've got another exhibition on, which in some ways is in great conversation with the one on Bordan, which is the Gapu Monarch Saltwater Journey to the Sea Country exhibition. And that seems, you know, fascinating. Can you tell us about what is at the heart of that exhibition? Yes, the heart of this exhibition is actually um, a, a defensive country mounted by the Yongle people who... and. The exhibition marks 10 years next year from the Blue Mud Bay decision of the High Court, which effectively confirmed Indigenous water rights uh, as being equivalent to land rights. And this was a, a very important decision. And again, it goes to the heart of what we do as a maritime museum, where we talk about the significance of Australia's waterways to Australia and to the people of Australia, to all people of Australia. And so the exhibition uh, displays bark paintings that actually record through the inherent um, messages in the paintings the Indigenous stewardship of and custodianship of waters and land. And the paintings were actually... They're beautiful works in and of themselves. They really are lovely to look at. But they were also used as evidence in the Blue Mud Bay case. They're actually legal documents. Mm. And so the paintings establish... Um, the, the defence of country and the, the custodianship of country for the Yongle people. And so, as such, we don't see this as an art exhibition. We see this as a, a, an exhibition which tells a really, really important story about the status of um, land and country uh, to mm. the people of, of the Northern Territory. It is a very interesting conversation with the Baudin exhibition, isn't it? Because you're sort of getting two sides, two interpretations of uh, this place we call Australia and its oceans. And it comes back to that point that um, multiple perspectives are essential to, to really understand. Uh, and we have, I guess, a, a view as a museum that when we say it's our mission to share Australia's maritime heritage, we see Australia as being fundamentally shaped by its relationship with our seas, oceans and rivers, mm. and that you don't understand Australia's economy, its environment, its people, its national defence, its geopolitics, unless you see them at, at least 
in, in some part through the lens of our relationship with the seas, the oceans and rivers that, that make up and surround the country. And so multiple perspectives on those waters are, are really fundamental to our national identity. And as a museum, being able to share those multiple perspectives from a national view, from an international view with exhibitions mm. such as Art of Science um, is, is fundamental to what we do. Do you think people from who are visiting from international visitors get a sense of Australia looking outwards, uh, Australians looking outwards, that sense of distance being defined by that huge body of water around us? Do you think that comes across? It's a really good question. I have to be honest, I, I don't know. I, I think there is there are perceptions of Australia as a, a vast desert country yeah. and you know, we're, as a vast land mass. But actually, you know, our, our territorial waters are massive. We are surrounded by these massive oceans, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Tourists to Australia must have a sense of the vastness of the oceans because they know how long a flight it is to get here <laughs> from wherever you're coming from. But the extent to which that's actually processed, I, I actually honestly don't know. And I think... We talk about the fact that Australia's population is largely, very largely a coastal population and the tourist experience of Australia is largely a coastal experience in, in a large part. So um, I, I guess it must to an extent, but it's not something I've actually looked at in enough detail to be able to give you a definitive answer. Another exhibition that's coming up that really riffs on this idea of the tyranny of distance uh, and shipping and oceans, you have an exhibition on shipping containers, which just sounds fantastic. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, this is a, a project that we've got opening later in the year called Container, the box that changed the world. And it literally looks at the impact the development of and the invention of the shipping container has had on global trade, not just Australia. I mean, it's interesting to reflect that well over something like 95%, more than 95% of Australia's global trade travels by sea. Uh, and uh, That's incredible. Know, it really is. And, you know, it's often a surprise to people. It's, it's that amount. And containers obviously are a, a significant part of Australia's maritime trade. And yet they've only been around since the second half of the 1950s. And so in the last... 50 to 60 years, we've we've seen the shipping container become you know, the basic building block of global trade. Mm. And um, if you can think of all the uh, objects that you might have around your house or that you might be wearing, how many of those will have had some kind of time in a shipping container? And yet containers have also become, you know, they're now being reused as building materials. You know, we, we're seeing them are, are, are the absolutely ubiquitous, and this exhibition explores that in in, in quite a playful way. Mm. And do you the, have a tiny house? I'm a bit obsessed with tiny houses. We don't and have a tiny house, but what we do have is the exhibition is actually in six shipping containers. So on the museum site, we're placing six containers uh, dotted around the site, and each of them picks up um, a different aspect of containerization. So. Uh, their effect on the oceans, their effect on shipping, on building. And so the, the, the notion of the, the reuse as tiny houses is absolutely, it's explored in the exhibition. And so, yeah, and visitors, this is a free exhibition. Visitors can literally just pop into one or more of the containers and explore this story. So to tell me a little bit about what's in one of those containers. So if I walk in, is it dark around me? Am I like seeing my goods being shipped across the ocean, jammed into a corner with the table leg broke, you know, broken? Does the I'll swell you, go up and down? One example I, I really like is, and it's so the, the containers all have a theme. There's ship, 
ocean stuff, um, you know, and the, the, the one on things, the one on objects. And what the team has done is they've turned the container into a giant display case and they've filled it with the objects that would be in a typical living room and are currently going through this amazing research process of working out just how many miles in a container each object and each component of each object wow. would have traveled in order to be able to be in your living room. And so, you know, if we're looking at a chair, okay, there's the timber, there's the nuts and bolts that put it together, there's the paint. Where, where have they all come from? And the, the research work the team has had to do to be able to get a handle on that is huge. But it's a very simple and elegant, essentially giant display case showing just how far everything we have has actually had to travel. Now we have one last little person slash animal to ask about in your newest edition of your curatorial team. Um, can you tell us about who is Bailey? Bailey, the assistant director of seagulls at the museum. Um, Bailey is uh, a dog. Uh, he is on the staff and uh, his job is to keep seagulls off our vessels. We have, we're an indoor-outdoor museum, so our site you know, is obviously subject to the seagull menace. They're, um, <laughs> they're all over the place. They they. they, they they haven't read Stephen King. No, no they, um, they do make a bit of a mess of the place and we don't want them killed, but we do want them leaving us alone a little bit. So Bailey goes on a regular patrol around the museum and uh, in doing so, he makes the seagulls feel that uh, the site is protected, the site is guarded, and so they're less likely to nest on our vessels. Uh, they will still visit, but they'll spend less time. And so Bailey does a fantastic job keeping seagulls off our, off our ships and also, while he's about it, helping morale at the, at the museum. <laughs> he's, a, he's a border collie with all that goes with that. So you don't have necessarily historical conflict going on amongst your exhibitions and sources and artefacts, but you do have a little bit of frontier conflict going on with Bailey and the seagulls. Absolutely, yes. Bailey is the sworn enemy of the seagulls and uh, he's, he's actually a rescue dog who uh, actually really, really enjoys chasing birds. <laughs> and so, uh, and when, when he's at work, he has to wear a life jacket because sometimes he will keep chasing the birds after the land has stopped. Um, and we have to fish him out of the harbour when that happens. So uh, he's, uh, he's, he's a working dog and he loves his work. And I understand that if anybody wants to see Bailey in action, you can do that because he wears a GoPro and the Sydney Museums at Customs House, I think, have an exhibition in which he features on. He, he does indeed. Yeah. Yes, and he's, he's online. He's on Facebook. You can, you can find him there as well and follow his adventures. Brilliant. And we're talking to curator Holly Williams from Customs House on our next episode. Fantastic. We're nearing the end of the show now. And before we go, we've got to do our Glam Slam segment where we check our diaries to let you know what's uh, what's coming up in our calendars for the next few weeks. So who's first? Anna. Yeah, well, I am going to take my kids to see the Australian Museum of Magical Arts in Darlinghurst because, you know, I don't know how they do that stuff, but I really want to find out. And I think the kids will have an amazing time looking at the ins and outs of tricks of the trade. And you, Michael? Uh, I'm going to shamelessly promote one more thing at the Maritime Museum. Uh, we are in the last uh, month of the display of the Dirk Hartog plate, which is the uh, pewter dish that Hartog uh, nailed up to a post off the coast of Western Australia. Uh, it's back in Australia for the 400th anniversary, which was last year of his arrival, and it's on display at the museum for another month. So it's, And I don't know when it will be back in Australia again. It will be many, many years before the Rijksmuseum let it out of the country again because it's extraordinarily delicate. So a last chance to see the Hartog plate. Did mm. it arrive in a shipping container? It, uh, no, it didn't. It arrived in a specially 
specially built session case. It was it was um, extraordinarily carefully packed, Hand, handcuffed to a to its seat somewhere in a business class. Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about the security <laughs> arrangements at all. Obviously, can you tell us where listeners can go to find out information about these exhibitions? The museum's website is the the best place to go: anmm.gov.au. Thank you very much, Michael. And that brings us to the close for Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, that's 2SER.com, and you can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at glamcity at 2SER.com. And thanks again to Michael Harvey for being our guest today. Absolute pleasure. We'll see you back here again next week for more Glam Conversations. Glam out. Thank you.